I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When I was losing capital initially in the equity capital markets, I always felt that it was a tuition fee that I needed to pay in order to learn. Fast forward to today, last year was actually my 20th straight year of profitability in the U.S. equity markets. And it would not have been possible if I didn't have those early stumbles. Because those early stumbles, that's when you become more introspective, right? You become more circumspect and exhaustive in, in terms of your discipline and, and your approach towards having that growth mindset. And good evening, good afternoon, good morning from wherever you are listening to the podcast from here in the Philippines and from all over the world. And welcome to my podcast, the RJ Ledesma Podcast. In this podcast, I like to interview the country's pioneering business personalities and trailblazing entrepreneurs to learn more about how they think about doing business. What are their success secrets? Can we use those same success secrets in our businesses? How have they innovated, pivoted, evolved their business during the pandemic times? And more importantly, what are the new emerging business opportunities they see in the new, new normal scenario? Now, is there a business personality or, or entrepreneur rather that you would like me to interview here on the podcast, please let me know. I would love to learn from them. Just drop me a message. <clears throat> right now, we are also live on Kumo and on YouTube tonight. Very excited to have you right now. The co-founder and CEO, CEO of Dragonfly Securities, they just launched their stock trading platform last May 8th. I'll be having you on the show, John Carolim of Dragonfly. Dragonfly targets to harness the power of the internet in a financial service context through Dragonfly Securities. Dragonfly is revolutionizing the investment landscape of the Philippines by develop, developing best-in-class web and mobile stock trading options. They are set to broaden the Filipinos' participation in the capital markets by providing advanced technology and tools for innovative stock market products. Now, uh, they said that their stretch goal is actually to produce a 100 billion value turnover in the first 24 months. It's very easy to open up an account here. It just takes you 30 minutes to open up a Dragonfly account and investors can op open up an account with a minimum deposit requirement of 25,000 pesos. Let's find out more about Dragonfly. Please welcome on my show, Mr. John Carlo Lim. John, welcome to the show. Hey, RJ. Thanks for having me. I've always enjoyed your podcast. I, I feel that you guys give the, an in-depth, you know, uh, uh, look into the entrepreneurial process. Thanks so much. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, you know, this is not this show is always quite a struggle to produce and and to, to make. But to hear you saying that one it, for me, it, it's such a it's so encouraging for me to hear that, and also for the people listening to the show. And now, John, I mean, before everything else, wow, you just launched May eight, and um, you know, and we're a couple of weeks into into May. How does it feel to have your platform up and running after several months, even years, of having to put this all together? Yeah, it was really a long road to get here. Uh, you know, the regulatory hurdle was pretty steep. And, uh, you know, we, we, we really wanted to come out with a best-in-class platform, which, which is not easy to do. Uh, so, yeah, we're pretty excited. Uh, we're excited to share this with, with the retail investing public uh, and uh, happy to be here. Great. Now, uh, in a nutshell, I know it's going to be very hard to explain Dragonfly, but what was the, again, are we saying, what was the elevator pitch? What was that like the 30 second to one minute pitch that you gave to explain what Dragonfly was all about? So, uh, so my co-founders and I, we really saw the white, white space brought about by the technological backwardness of the brokerage space at large, uh, in the country. Um, 
how is it possible that the trading platforms that I use to trade the U.S. equity markets in 2002 are better than any of the trading platforms available today locally? So we took the uncompromising route of uh, acquiring and customizing the best technology uh, and uh, customizing it for the Philippine use case. Uh, we share the same technology, some of the largest brokerages in, in the U.S., making it really purpose-built for the most demanding markets in the world. So uh, I think for the first time in the Philippines, we finally have a trading platform that can really stand toe-to-toe with the best in the world. Got that. In fact, you know, I was reading uh, articles from Mercado, Mercada, and, and from Bloomberg who were commenting, and I hope you don't mind uh, blowing your own horn, but what was their feedback when it came using initially the Dragonfly platform? And before that, Zeke, my producer, can you please flash the Dragonfly uh, website here for those who want to, to uh, start to open up an account? So that's dragonfly.ph, that's D-R-A-G-O-N dot, uh, D-R-A-G-O-N Fi dot P-H. So, John, yeah, tell us a bit more about uh, the product. Yeah. So, so, uh, so, as I mentioned, uh, uh, the pain point that we were trying to address really was the substandard UI UX of the trading platforms, of uh, the incumbent platforms. So I felt that uh, if, if, if you check out the incumbent players, the technology that they were using was really turn-of-the-century technology. It had an inability to scale. Uh, the UI UX was at par with, uh, let's say, the platforms that you see in developed countries. So uh, we wanted to address those issues and, and provide the best-in-class UI UX experience to the investing public. Got that. So I'm going to try to, let's try to concretize it a bit more. I hope you don't mind, John. Let's say, okay, this was the current pain, painful or friction-filled experience. And this is the frictionless experience which you're getting here right now. How did people like the Mercado Mercado and the others explain just how much more seamless it had become after you guys came in? Yeah, the notable comment of Mercado Mercado is the Dragonfly platform is the best in the country and it isn't even close. And uh, to be honest, you know, when we were developing the platform, we never benchmarked against the existing players locally. We actually benchmarked against the best of breed platforms internationally. I'm talking about the Charles Schwab, the TD Ameritrade, the interactive brokers of the world. And I actually feel that in a lot of respects, Dragonfly platform is actually even better than some of those US-based platforms that I mentioned. Great. Well, let's talk a bit more about putting that up uh, just a bit, no? But what I want to talk about here right now is the idea that, you know, how did the actual, you know, you're talking about you and your co-founders, right? And what many people, you know, what's coming out of the news is that, wow, your co-founders are in Japsia of Double Dragon and, of course, Tony Tan uh, of Jollibee. So I think what they really want to hear right now is, is what is that, that entrepreneurial story that brought it about? So can we take a step back? I, I'm, I'm guessing that you approached them and pitched the idea to them, and that's why they like Let's take a couple of steps back and tell me a bit more about where the co-founding came from. I know I understand the main pain point you were trying to address, but while I'm Bagaldita, this is so backward for 2022 and we don't seem to be anywhere close. How come that gap wasn't being addressed? Smart people like you and people in the stock market who played over there and who dabble in stocks and states and, and use those advanced platforms. Why wasn't anything done between 2022 and 2002, like you were saying? Mm. You know, it's hard for me to put myself in the shoes of, let's say, the incumbent players, right? But I feel that there's really, from a technological point of view, uh, locally, we really don't have the development talent uh, necessary to hurdle the technological challenges that was faced by by the uh, financial market industry in the country. So that being said, you know, I, I felt that there was this, uh, there was this, uh, disposition wherein you know puedena puedena right i mean uh, we we all know that uh, the, the local stock market only trades like 300,000 trades a day uh, it's it's mm-hmm. very liquid the, the incumbent players uh, probably felt that it, it wasn't necessary to bring a best in class technology which actually is very very expensive to develop but that mindset actually hindered greater adoption and engagement in the equity capital markets which in turn hindered the development of the capital markets at large. And uh, that was something that was really, I felt that was very important to address. I graduated in 1999 from Ateneo. And that was, let's say, the, the tail end of the dot-com boom. And I was really fascinated. 
I was really fascinated by the innovative companies that was sprouting up during that era. But moreover, I was actually fascinated with the vibrancy of the capital markets in the U.S., wherein the capital markets fueled actually entrepreneurial risk-taking and innovation. And that's something that I felt that the Philippines needed in order to truly democratize economic prosperity. So, yeah, I was actually in the U.S. when uh, I was I was still in the U.S. when uh, a Double Dragon went IPO. And I thought it was really a watershed moment. And I've always felt that INJAP represented the latent potential of the equity capital market. Because, again, it was very U.S.-like in the sense that he was able to really tap the public uh, the public capital markets to fund a new venture and uh, innovative initiatives, right? So in that sense, that, that's why I sought out Injap when, when it came to DragonFi, because uh, I really felt that going forward, Injap really represented that entrepreneurial spirit and the ability to tap the, the capital markets. Yeah, I have to share, you know, I, I learned also a lot from Injap, you know, because my, I'm in the food entrepreneurship space. And I remember, you know, what's advice to me was before when he was starting out the business, you know, how he was able to, you know, what's amazing about him is that it's his x-ray analysis of different things, so of different industries. And I remember he used to tell me uh, his, his smile strategy when it came to Mang Inasal. He's saying, okay, if this was a McDonald's and this was a Jollibee, I'd put Mang Inasal over here. And eventually he said, I want to get to a point where I annoy, I annoy Jollibee enough that they would buy me up, which eventually, <laughs> which, which eventually did happen. And a very brilliant guy and very humble guy here at the same time. Imagine from Binchano uh, coming to the city. You know, he was barely in the city for about, you know, he barely came to Manila. And you know, he built Mang Inasal to what it is and finally sold it to Jollibee. Now, I want to take a step back before approaching Inja to pitch this project. Um, I want to go also to the sort of the genesis of how it came about. So, you, you, you know that there was a backward nature to how they were doing the technology here. Uh, you sort of had the financial background. Uh, I'm not sure about the technical or the IT background. How did you put together a team that you could pitch to inject this concept and, you know, he would, he would uh, be positive? Uh, he wouldn't be lukewarm to your, to your pitch. Yep. So you're correct. As far as the main expertise in finance was concerned. So I got that covered. And my wife actually graduated from Cornell with uh, a master's in computer science. And she was, she became a developer for uh, both Bank of America and Citibank in, in, in New York for the equities trading division. So together we had the domain expertise for both finance and technology. So that was really the pitch. And that was really, I felt that it was, we were really strong together in that sense in uh, developing the overall business model. Well, so this is a husband-wife team that approached uh, Injapsia for this one with nothing but guts and laway. I mean, it was, I mean basically, that's, how I, that's why I talk about it. That, that's, that's actually true. I mean, uh, I think, RG, correct me if I'm wrong. You also did. You, 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 all, you also pursued your master's in real estate in the U.S., right? That's right. And, yeah. and one thing that you learn uh, from uh, pursuing a, a grad degree in the U.S. is the U.S. culture is actually a very networking-oriented culture. So uh, after that, with that experience, I, I really felt very comfortable uh, approaching uh, Injap and, and anybody for that matter. And, and so it, it wasn't really a stretch for me. Well, really great story over there. Before I continue, I just want to greet the guys listening to us here right now. I've got Roy Japan all the way from Japan. Thanks so much for listening to us here right now. Uh, I've got several disclaimer. I've done several great tours to get with Roy in both Osaka, Tokyo. Really great. And we also have got Nathan Apilado saying hi. Good evening, sir, uh, RJ, and guest. Guest John, thanks so much for coming here. A uh, lot of great learnings coming on uh, for both of them. Now, here's the interesting thing about John. Okay, John, you have a finance background, right? Correct. But what you are doing and still presently do is that you are actually, amazingly enough, in the makeup business, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. So it's called, it's, uh, the correct name is Vice Cosmetics, is it right? Yep, it's Vice Cosmetics. Yeah. So, so in my sense, so you're correct, right? So my, my really my core competency really is in finance and investing. But the thing is, uh, like like uh, like I elaborated earlier, um, I was really fascinated by the innovative innovative companies that were sprouting out in in the U.S. And I saw entrepreneurial ventures as another sort of like investment vehicle. So for me, 
you could be selling food, you could be se- you, you could be selling uh, cosmetics or skincare. It, it doesn't really matter. It's it, what matters is the unit economics behind it. Got it. Got it. Spoken like a startup guy. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> how did you get into the makeup business? Because my guess is that okay, you did your masters in the U.S. an MBA in the University of Chicago, really great finance yes. school. Uh, then, yep. you, then you then you came back over here, and from our conversation offline, your parents weren't exactly. Um, I mean, not like the usual Filipinos who are very, from what I see, no, very entrepreneurial. Like from understand from Filipino Chinese businesses, you know, the difference between Filipinos and Filipino Chinese is that. But Pinoy, they're going to ask you, oh, what is your position in the company or have you achieved this level in the company? But for Phil Chai, it's more like, oh, what business have you put up? What business are you running now? So was this makeup business something that was in the family or did you, did you do it yourself? And how did you come across this opportunity? No, no, no. Actually, I'm, I'm the first uh, member of my immediate family to become an entrepreneur. So... So um, I come from a non-entrepreneur family wherein uh, business and finance weren't conversation staples in the, in the dining table. So my entrepreneur fervor, as I mentioned, was actually cultivated uh, during my stint in city securities as a, as a U.S. markets equity trader. That, that, that was it. Uh, that was it for me. You know, after that, I was hooked. And I started one business after the other, you know, uh, one uh, one better than than the previous one. You know, I had an iterative process by which I, you know, uh, I had a growth mindset wherein I learned from one business to the next, and each business incorporated the learnings of uh, of the previous one. Yeah, I want to just add, John. I want I want to add just what you were saying. I hope you mind me interrupting you, but that is that I want to reiterate what he said. It's growth mindset, meaning that if you noticed what was, if I was reading between the lines that. He opened up a lot of different businesses and he failed in those businesses. But the, the failure didn't mean that, you know, I, I'm not going to get any better. The growth mindset just means that the failure from the previous business, I'm going to use that as fuel or insight for me to improve myself in the next business that I do. Am I right, John? Correct. That, that, that's, uh, that's absolutely correct. Uh, you know, you, you only fail if you don't try again, right? Exactly. It, it's, it's, it's an adage for a reason. And, um, uh, Entrepreneurship really is a journey in discovery. Uh, you really need to learn how to deal with adversity. You really need to have that growth mindset, since it's 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 really a marathon, not a sprint. You know, you can't uh, uh, succeeding immediately in entrepreneurship is really an outlier. Yeah. Event, uh, right? I can, I can truly commiserate with you. I can truly commiserate and empathize with absolutely everything. <laughs> Uh, that you're saying here right now. So, uh, it, it, to my mind, is that you were I, you were ideating, iterating across many business ventures until Correct. you finally got to the makeup industry. I mean, that's yes. how you, right? And how did you how did you end up there? Because you know, some people they would think that I have to be passionate about a business to get into it. Um, I'm looking at you, and I hope you don't mind me saying you don't look like somebody who's passionate about makeup when I when I when I look at you. No, I'm, I'm just passionate about the margins. I'm passionate about the free cash flow generation. That's it. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. Uh, so uh, makeup is something that my my wife, you know, uh, had a predilection for coming back from the U.S. So she saw a lot of uh, Korean cosmetics, and uh, and she started she started uh, importing and dis- distributing some of the Korean cosmetic brands. Then we were on vacation uh, in LA, and I, I met with one of my uh, Ateneo College classmates. His name is Maki Samako, and he was also in, in, in the cosmetic industry in LA. So it's funny, two guys in, in the cosmetic industry, and we, we were talking. And this was, you know, this was this was the time when Kylie Cosmetic you know, of the Kylie Kylie Jenner fame, right, launched launched her line, and, and he was he was saying, why don't we why don't we copy the same business model, but with a twist? So the twist there was to use, uh, uh, to use Vaiskanda as the face of, of, of the cosmetic line. So, uh, you know, uh, we, we wanted Vice to stand for uh, inclusivity and diversity. And we felt at that point in time, the Philippines was ready. Uh, uh, so I, I read this book called uh, Eating the Big Fish on how, uh, small uh, small companies uh, eat the market share of, of, of the larger incumbents. And one of the things that I learned there was 
in in one of the chapters, it talked about Mac cosmetic. So Mac cosmetic was uh, is 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 the largest one of the largest cosmetic brands in the world. And the way they broke through was in 1990, uh, they used RuPaul, uh, so a, a gay celebrity, to stand for inclusivity and diversity. So that that was the play actually. So that was the that that was the analog for us. Wow! And wow. and it really worked. And I, I have to say, you know, Vice Cosmetics is. It's not my success alone. I had fantastic partners. You, you know, Rhoda Campos, Aldenese, also Maki Samako, his, his wife, Anna Samako, Kathy was there, and Kate Valenzuela. So it was really a meeting of the minds. We brought to bear everything that we've learned from our entrepreneurial journey to that venture. And it, it was really uh, uh, a rousing success. And up to now, you're still running, uh, you're still running uh, Vice. Cosmetics. So, so, so now, uh, Kathy, my wife, and um, uh, Anna Samako, uh, they're they're the prime prime movers of Vice Cosmetics. Did so, I'm Annie, I'm really focused on Dragonfly. Did did, uh, did Annie move back with her husband to the Philippines as a result of the growth of Vice? Uh, are you saying that did Anna move back to the Philippines? Yes, yes, with her husband. Yeah, yes, she flies back and forth. She flies back and forth to the Philippines. Great. Yep. I yeah. think over here, Trisha Tu uh, saying over here, very insightful discussion about Sir John and Dragonfly. I, I very much agree with you, Trisha, that it's a very insightful discussion. You know, as an aside, I just want to find out, John, because, you know, I'm looking at you and saying, you were the guy who approached Vice Ganda to tell him, I want you to be the one <laughs> of the brand because you talk about inclusivity or that was the power of collaboration and partnership with the different people that you brought into uh, Vice Cosmetics. Yeah, so again, that was a collective effort. Uh, Rhoda was there during the meeting. Mackie was there during the meeting. Kathy was there. So we all approached Vaiskanda with, 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 with the idea. And actually, he, he immediately took to it. I, I thought it, it, was, it, was, it was one of those uh, serendipitous moments, you know. Uh, Vice Cosmetics, I actually texted my, my partners the eve of the Dragonfly launch. And I told them, you know, when we launched Vice, there, there was there was a single shred of doubt in all our minds that it was going to be a huge hit. And uh, I was telling them, now I'm 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 on the precipice of starting a new venture, and I'm and I'm you know I, I was having jitters, and I just recalled you know uh, what what transpired uh, during our Vice Cosmetic days, and it was really uh, a very a harmonious collaboration between partners who really truly enjoy working with with, with each other. Uh, this is what I find interesting. That uh, I was about to ask you actually. Now, was there a point when you doing when you were doing Vice Cosmetics when you thought that, and like for any entrepreneur, there there are moments of doubt because people only see when we, we succeed because that's what, that's what we put press releases out about for for the benefit of growing the business. But was there a yep. point where you where you going? Or, or it's not going to work, or you know, or, or you doubted whether or not doing vice is going to be something successful. No, n- not at all. So, as I mentioned, right, we brought to bear our collective experiences. So, one of the things that you know, uh, I mentioned about that growth mindset, right, having that iterative process throughout my entrepreneurial journey, uh, I've learned that the things that you should value is free cash flow, increasing free cash flow yield, uh, having that moat. Uh, having that ability to rise above the noise, it, it, having that scalability, and Vice checked all the boxes. Uh, one of the uh, one of the great uh, strategies that we actually implemented in Vice is something that we learned from distributing the Korean cosmetic brands. So, so in 2013, 2014, um, the Korean our Korean principals they they actually required you to have a boutique. They really you had to have like a 50 square meter boutique. Which, which would set you back around four to five million pesos, right? So that was really uh, inimical to free cash flow generation. So with, with Vice Cosmetics, the innovation there was we wanted to be able to distribute Vice nationwide, but uh, use uh, pop-up stores, use, use the, the Watsons and, and department store model, thereby shrinking the CAPEX from that five million figure that I mentioned to as low as like 50,000, 60,000, to even 300,000. So the, the free cash flow generation, actually, uh, it, it, the, the Vice Cosmetics model allowed us to actually break even within three months, our entire paid up capital. For, for me, that was outstanding. I, I've, never, I've never been part of any business venture that was 
at that at that scale, wherein we had 200 stores nationwide and we broke even in three months. That that was a fantastic experience. Well, thanks for sharing with that sharing that insight with us. Uh, we have here Paul Ari saying I could listen to Sir John for days. Uh, such insightful resource. Let's pull that up so you can see that uh, Zeke. Uh, really great feedback coming from one of our uh, listeners. And aside from that one, um, this guy, this guy Patrick, is actually guessing uh, uh, what I want to ask next uh, from Johnny Singh. Now, now that when you set, let's let's put his last question there, Zeke. Was there any learnings or mental models from your experience in Vice Cosmetics that you were able to carry over to Dragonfly? So that's my, actually my next question. Um, what what did you pick up? Like you said, everything was iterative for you. So you picked up from your previously uh, not so successful ventures, which ended up becoming Vice, and then from Correct. Vice, a venture which you eventually left uh, in very capable hands. What did you pick up from there that you were able to use for Dragonfly? Because at, at the onset, you wouldn't think there's a connection between uh, the makeup industry and doing the stock market industry. Yep. So, okay. Uh, what I learned from Vice, my biggest takeaway from Vice. So I mentioned it checked all the boxes, right? Free cash flow, uh, scalability. Uh, what was missing from Vice Cosmetics was having that moat. So this was a discussion between Injap and myself, actually. So when, when I when I first met Injap in 2017, I visited him in the Double Dragon office. And he mentioned to me the difference between Vice and, let's say, for example, Double Dragon. In Double Dragon, the buck stops at the value of the land, as opposed to Vice Cosmetics, which he felt we were just shelf space. Do you get what I mean, RJ? So we were just shelf space. So in that case, for, for Dragonfly, I was actually looking for a moat. And in this case, the moat is a regulatory moat. So it is very, very, very difficult uh, to get a license, a trading license from the PSE. And, uh, and, and the, both the PSE and the SEC, they have a mandate to shrink actually the number of trading participants in the PSE. So I already felt right there that, that acquiring the license eventually will have scarcity value. And so that's, that's something that I learned uh, from Vice Cosmetics that I applied to Dragonfly. So again, Dragonfly also checks all the boxes in terms of the ability to generate free cash flow. When I was really researching, researching this business opportunity, I saw that, I, I saw that uh, uh, the typical brokerage uh, the free cash flow was three times the EPS, so uh, the earnings per share. So those were the things that, that I saw that checked all the boxes previously. Plus, uh, I learned from Vice Cosmetics how through branding and through marketing, how to rise above the noise. And if, if you notice how we're branding uh, Dra- Dragonfly, if you see a launch video, it's really very different from how everyone else has... Uh, has uh, marketed in this industry. Got that. And actually, that's what I think also when you talk about the moat, and I'm, I'm thinking this from an entrepreneurial mindset or how, how, how I would describe it, it's really putting up what I would call your secret sauce or your, your unfair advantage. Because, like, for example, what is the unfair advantage? For me, I would think for at least vice, it would be that it's vice kanda. I mean, that, that's an that's advantage in itself because of the of the brand equity that he brings into the brand. And that's a sort of large moat enough or a secret sauce that nobody can, I mean, you could have used anybody else, but he agreed. So, you know, and, and what he carries with him provides your moat or your secret sauce. And if you look at it, when it comes to Dragonfly, your moat really is the regular, you know, not everybody can withstand the regulatory hurdles that you have to get approved to be able to do something like a Dragonfly. And, and that provides your sort of moat from anybody else who tries to enter into the industry. If, if that's my part, if my understanding is correct. Yep, that's precisely correct. If you, if you look at the, let's say, for example, the insurance industry, right? The insurance industry, it used to be that the, the initial paid up capital just to start an insurance company was, was 100 million, right? So the, there were a lot of participants, but over the years, as I mentioned about Dragonfly, you, you, you saw scarcity value, the scarcity value in having that uh, insurance license. Now, the paid up capital required unimpaired paid up capital for ins- the insurance industry is what, 1 billion. So I foresee su- such, su- such an occurrence with, with let's say, the, the Philippine Stock Exchange as well. It, it, in, in, in probably, if you fast forward 10, 15 years down the line, you, you probably would, would, would see uh, 
uh, something similar occur. I see. Um, Patrick, uh, thanks you for the answer. And actually, his other question was a, a question I was going to reserve for later on, but I, I think I'm going to ask it right here right now. Uh, and you said earlier on, given that success is an outlier for first-time businessmen, any advice for first-time entrepreneurs such as myself? And you know, um, as uh, you know, I want to just I want to chime in with uh, with with before before uh, I give John a chance to answer, if you don't mind, John. It's it's really that really expect that failure is built into your business model. I would say, and that's why the growth mindset right. is important because uh, to be successful the first time around. Uh, that's amazing. I mean, that, that the chances for that are truly amazing. But sometimes your first business model isn't your best business model. Sometimes you have to get your feet wet to understand what's going wrong and pivot from there. They often say that as an entrepreneur, it's not ready, aim, fire. It's ready, aim, ready, uh, ready, aim, uh, ready, aim, fire, aim, fire, aim, fire, aim, fire. Because you know, you you keep on the, the targets keep on moving until you find what is the correct market that you have to go for what's the correct technology that you have to do what's the correct formula for marketing i mean that's that's basically how it's like for for first timers uh to do business um i i haven't met any any first time successful businessman isn't showing you what's happening behind the curtains for that for the success that he has there's so many many failures that have happened in between uh, john correct not to what, uh, what i just shared no, I, I, I agree with you 100%. As, as a matter of fact, if you succeed the first time around, it might actually cover up all the flaws of your approach, right? Sometimes that, that's what happens, right? <laughs> so in, in my case, you know, my, my philosophy after being an entrepreneur for, for the past, like let's say 10, 15 years now, my philosophy is that you have to respect the probabilities, right? We've all heard that, you know, you only have a 10% chance to succeed whenever you start a business and whenever you go to market, you have to assume that the odds are stacked against you and understanding that will encourage you to be more conscientious in terms of researching the business opportunity. Okay. How do I generate free cash flow? How much, how much capital do I really need uh, to see this uh, business plan fruition? What are the moats embedded in, in my business model? And such and such, right? So it, it's really, obviously, once you're in the trenches, once you're, you're in the trenches, pivoting is inevitable, right? Yeah, pivoting yeah. is inevitable. Agreed. But, I mean, uh, having the foresight to look out for the pitfalls really will save you a lot of time and resources. So uh, you can st- there are still things that are avoidable. There's still things that are avoidable. So having that high bar to making something actionable is actually very, very important. But and having said that, it's the same thing uh, when you're when you're doing the startup industry. You know, what people don't realize is that when they are investing in an early stage startup, these venture capitalists, I mean, they know that you're probably not going to succeed the first time around. They know that you're going to find your way a bit more. But the real investing in the founder and say, okay, I believe in this founder, and I believe that if he doesn't find the solution the first time around, he's going to find a pivot or make. This cartel until he finds the correct solution, uh, and that's that's how I understand many many investments are made into early stage startups. Yep, that's actually spot on, RJ. As a matter of fact, in Chicago, in our in our VCPE class, we were we were taught that you know when uh, the, the cost of capital that uh, the, the 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 VCs use to uh, compute your value as, as a startup is actually sixty six percent. That's incredible. That's you're, you're talking about uh, an IRR of six six percent per annum. That's that that's, that that shows you how uh, high the odds are stacked against you. Exactly. Uh, there's another good question coming in from. Uh, I hope you don't mind. We, we, let's let's take it here right now because it's great interaction here right now from Trisha to you. As a young professional, I only have limited capital. Hence, is it possible for me to Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. As an entrepreneur, because your success story intrigues and inspires me. So let me, let me tackle this first. I hope you don't mind. It's a great process, I think, that, that you're listening to both myself and to, to John, both as entrepreneurs. But um, again, the idea is that as an entrepreneur, your job is to solve problems, right? I mean, it's, it's a problem solving mindset. And, and that means that there is a problem that is in front of you that you're passionate about solving. And, and there are many ways to, 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 to tackle that problem. And if you're looking at capital as the first way to tackle that problem, then for me, that's, a, that's an issue. Because, for example, um, I often tell people, if you look at Steve C, uh, you know, Steve C of Great Deals e-commerce. Yep. Well, Steve C, before he entered into Great Deals e-commerce, he was selling insurance, right? Why? Because insurance didn't require a lot. Like you said, it didn't require a lot of your own capital. Your capital there, again, guts and lawai, right? Going out there, generating capital for him to be able to use eventually uh, to grow the business. But then after getting the capital... He, he found great deals because, you know, eventually, I don't know if you know the story, John, of how he did it. You know, he was selling, you know, he had a kiosk, he was selling things online. And then eventually one day when he was on, on uh, I think it was Tasada, uh, he found out that, you know, he tried to dispose all his, all his things one day during a 9-9 sale. He saw, wow, everything disappeared. This is stock disappeared. He's having a time to invest. Because he saw that there was an undershare oh. opportunity coming out from there. Yep. I can hear you. No problem, John. Yeah. You're good. So, and and um, and that's how he came about. Okay. Limited capital is, is sort of like a mindset in terms of how do you generate it. I mean, there's many ways to generate it. It can be sweat equity. It can be partnership. Like John, I'm sure that starting off Dragonfire required you to, you know, you had limited capital on your own, but you had great ideas and you've got a great partner to partner up with you. So you can succeed based on you're solving a problem that nobody else can solve, or there's an underserved opportunity that nobody else is seeing, and you can solve it because of your own skill set. But to generate capital, that's where you become creative. That's where that discarded entrepreneur comes in. John, what's your own take? Yes. Uh, actually, you and I are the same mind. Um, there was one constant behind the scenes in terms of my entrepreneurial journey. And that was really my, uh, my investing endeavors in the U.S. equity markets. As I mentioned, I didn't have family money to lean on. And I really needed to generate capital at scale, with velocity, in order to fund my entrepreneurial ventures. <laughs> and to, to Trisha's question, you know, the journey is really, really very, very hard. Again, it's a journey of discovery. Uh, you really le- need to learn how to dig deep as an entrepreneur. It's like a lot of ups and downs, but you always have to put it within a long-term context. That's what I felt not only in my entrepreneurial journey, but in in my investing journey as well. When I was losing capital initially in the equity capital markets, I always felt that it was a tuition fee that I I needed to pay in order to learn. Fast forward to today, last year was actually my 20th straight year of profitability in the U.S. equity markets. And it would not have been possible if I didn't have those early stumbles. Because those early stumbles, that's when you become more introspective, right? You, You become more circumspect and exhaustive in, in terms of your discipline and, and your approach towards having that growth mindset. Got that. Really nice answers, John. Thanks so much for sharing all those. Now, I want to move on this time around to, okay, you had a great idea. You say for this one, you are blessed with a wife who is in IT and yes. has an idea of, of what to do. And I say we're blessed because I also work together with my wife. And you know, in, in, in our company, um, she is the... She executes. I'm, I'm, I'm a good idea man. That's my job. Ideas, networking, business dev, and strategy. But she, it, it, without her, I wouldn't be able to execute. Having said that, I haven't praised our wives. Moving on. How did you finally um, approach Injap? You said you approached him back in 2017 and eventually you made the pitch. What gave you the confidence to make the pitch? And what was your, exactly your pitch to Injap? So, okay. So, so I met Injap in 2017. And so... 
from 2017 onwards, you know, every now and then I, I would send him a text message. I would, I, I would keep the, uh, the, the, the relationship intact. Then around 2020, around 2021, during the height of the pandemic, when I saw that the, the leading players in the industry were having, you know, technological struggles, uh, people were having, uh, it, it, they were, people were having difficulty logging into their accounts. Uh, the, the, the incumbent platforms were having slow connectivity and, and whatnot. That was actually the moment when I said, okay, enough is enough, you know? So, uh, I created a business plan and um, I approached. So uh, uh, six months later, uh, when it was ready, you, I studied the industry. I approached Ms., uh, Mr. Sia and it was surprising. Mr. Sia, Mr. Sia actually concurred with my assessment on account of the fact that when he had his Marymart IPO, uh, the incumbent player, the dominant incumbent player, stopped accepting new accounts on account of the fact that they couldn't take the scale. And he said right away, yep, I know this is a, this is a pain point for the industry. You know, within 10 minutes of my presentation, he was already saying, you know, I already wanted to tell you, yes, I'm in. <laughs> he, he, saw, he saw the value. He saw the value, the merits of the business model right away. But, but RJ, you know, you know, I forgot to mention that. So I applied for, for uh, the University of Chicago for my MBA in 2006. And actually, in my goals essay, I mentioned that I was going to start a financial services firm in the future. And it just took time. And you asked me why, why the detour to the cosmetic arena, why the detour to, uh, to retail. But the fact of the matter is, as I mentioned, the financial services industry, the regulatory barriers are very, very high. Mm-hmm. And it takes a lot of credibility uh, and a lot of, a lot of backing, uh, both financially and, uh, and uh, reputational capital mm-hmm. to be able to surmount those, those hurdles. So it just took time. But uh, to the University of Chicago Admission Committee, committee I, I would like to say that I held up my <laughs> end of the bargain. I held up my end of the bargain, and uh, I, I'm proud to say that. Yeah, finally, they can they can put the addendum right now to your uh, to your diploma, saying okay, fulfilled based on his uh, essay. <laughs> <laughs> how did you bring in? How did um, so? In Jap told his business partner Tony Tan Katyong saying, okay, let's both put money into these new ventures. How did that work? Yep. So so we appro- I approach in Jap. And Inja Im- immediately said, you know, this venture is stronger with Tony. And I mean, that's, that's an indisputable statement right there. Uh, I mean, you're, you're talking about uh, uh, a person who's the prime mover of what is potentially going to be the fifth largest restaurant company in the world. And so how do you say no to that? You know? Wow. So when, when he brought it in, so finally, okay, you guys had, I mean, this is, I mean, you've got the, you've got the general idea. You were able to pitch great idea. You brought in you brought in the founder of Jollibee. You've got the founder of Mang Inasal. It, it, it's it's really great. What was next for you? I mean, because the, the big I, I would presume that okay, they would provide uh, the financial I guess engine for you to put this up. But there were still the regulatory hurdles that you had to put up, and of course, being able to trade in itself, there, there's a you have to. There's a lot of uh, I I know because I was trying to also. Work around my idea. Work some ideas around this one. You have to be able to buy a seat to be able to to to, to, to do this. How how did it go about? How did you manage all this after that one? So so after they said yes, so we immediately looked for a target uh, because the Philippine Stock Exchange they no longer issue new licenses. So you you, you actually have to acquire an existing business. So uh, if you look at the competitive landscape, what's what's happening? What's happening to the the, the Philippine Stock Exchange? There's around 120 brokerages, but a, a lot of them are no longer financially viable. So a lot of a lot of brokerages actually want to sell, but it's 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 extremely hard to sell on account of the fact that it's 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 hard to get the acquisition approved by the PSE and the SEC. So uh, once we found a target, so once we found a target, um, it, it's just a matter of like submitting your application to the, to the PSE and being interviewed by, by the PSE board, a membership committee. 
So we, we, we were able to surmount those. Uh, long story short, uh, uh, we, then, we then applied for the SEC. The, the SEC application actually took nine months. And so, so there, there's no magic to it. It, it was just a very, uh, very onerous, onerous, and onerous journey. Um, so finally, it's May 7th. It's the eve of May 7th. I'm just very curious, as a businessman, as an entrepreneur, putting this up, you, you did say you called your Dragonfly, uh, Dragonfly uh, your, your, rather your vice co-founders. What was, what was going through your mind that evening right before the trading platform was launched? Uh, butterflies, for sure. I mean, butterflies, for sure. Uh, I felt that it was another, you know, you, you know RJ, right? Every, every, time, every time we go to market, Initially, the momentum carries you, but when you're when you're on the verge of launching, all the doubts start 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 starts piling piling on, and that, that, that's what that's what happened to me as well. Uh, I, I won't lie to you. I mean, but you know, af- after the launch and after seeing the receptivity of the market, you know, I'm I'm, I'm again encouraged. Again, that, those are the highs and lows, right? <laughs> those are the highs and lows. So so. I was nervous, but now I'm encouraged. I see that the receptivity of the market and they validated essentially our, our business model. And I feel that we have the wind behind our back, to be now, honest. And say, saying that, tell, tell us a bit more about how, how it's been performing since, since you opened up in May. How, how's been the, oftentimes you use the word traction, especially in the startup industry, but how's it been so far, uh, the take-up of, of the Dragonfly app? So it's actually better than expected. So just to elaborate on, on the Dragonfly app, right? Uh, you asked me earlier and I failed, I, I failed to respond. So the, the, the business model was really to have that super investing app wherein uh, we were going to give Filipinos access to the financial markets that matter to them. And, but in order to get to that point, we need the regulations to evolve, to be able to, let's say, for example, provide the U.S. Uh, access to the U.S. equity markets to, to Filipino investors, right? So, in that sense, when we when we launched with our first offering, which was uh, a, a leading edge uh, PSE trading platform, I wo- I always felt that since it, it didn't have the associated parts such as the U- U.S. equity markets and, and other asset classes, it it wasn't going to, the, the traction wasn't going to be that fast to begin with. But actually, uh, the reality is I'm, I'm very surprised at, at the amount of, you know, uh, enthusiasm that the clients have had to, towards Dragonfly. Wow. Um, and I know that you, you did mention, and it's, it's like, again, I'm going to, I'm going to put a disclaimer there. It's, it's a stretch goal over here to do about a hundred billion, hundred billion in turnover in about two years. Um, more or less, well, how do you think that Dragonfly is going to be growing over the next two years to be able to achieve uh, the scale? Yep. So something I want to tell our clients is this is just the first disruption. Uh, we're going to announce two new new innovations over the coming months uh, that I'm not I'm not ready to reveal on air, but we truly believe that uh, we have the technological edge and. Our competitors, they'll be responding to our first initiative, but we're actually developing our second and third initiatives. So to your question, I believe that stretch goal is possible. I believe that stretch goal is possible on account of the fact that we will be innovating going forward. And uh, I, I wish I can tell you the, the innovations that we, we, we are about to launch in the coming months, but adhere to the principle of, I believe that you lead with reality. You don't lead with the hype. I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs who, who keep on hyping stuff and in the end don't deliver. But in our case, we lead with, we, we lead with reality. That's actually in keeping with when, when, when we said before that, you know, we were going to come out with the best in class trading uh, uh, platform for the PSE. And we, we achieved that. And just watch out for the next two, the next two uh, innovations that we're going to come out in the coming months. Got it. And actually, there's, there's, a, there's a question from Pao Ari, which is going to be absolutely similar to the question I wanted to ask. Let's just post the question there, Z. Uh, the question was, how do you plan on growing user base considering stock trading exposure isn't that big locally? Do you also consider that as a hurdle to scale? And the way that I would just rephrase it is that, you know, we have, 
you know, we have one of the lowest percentages of of uh, of, of people of of citizens invested in the stock market. Even if you just compare it to the rest of Southeast Asia, right? Uh, we're very low in terms of our stock market investment. What exactly is a strategy for for Dragonfight to get people? And I'm guessing you're not just looking at first time. You're not looking at you know expert stock investors. You're first time investors, even OFW investors, to to look into our stock market. What's your strategy to get the first timers to come into the platform? Okay, I have two responses to that question. First, the the, the stats that you mentioned. You know, 1.8 percent of working age population is trading. You know, the, the Philippine stock exchange. Uh, the uh, value turnover to market cap, value turnover to G- GDP, all, you know, one third of global average. But it's been that way for so long yes. that isn't there room for positive surprise? And in my mind, there is. The Philippines has been growing, you know, the Philippines actually pre-pandemic authored one of the fastest growth rates in the world at, at, at around 6.2%. And we're right back at, 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 at those levels. And I believe that I've never seen, I've never seen a developed economy with an under underdeveloped capital market. I've never seen that, right? So I, I believe there's really room for mean reversion in in, in that sense. So I, I feel that there's really a lot of room for positive surprise in, in, in as far as the equity capital market go, goes, right? Uh, uh, in, 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 to your question regarding how we're, we're going to generate. Uh, uh, interest in, in the market and engagement, I think it's a collective effort by all the industry participants, not just myself. I, I'm sure you guys heard about Gcash and uh, I, 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 Gcash coming out with Gstocks. And I know for a fact that there are other players that are going to be coming I- into the fray uh, uh, with such an offering that can actually democratize access to the markets. So I believe that from from the Dragonfly standpoint, we're, we're we're attacking that we're attacking that 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 problem that quandary from an education standpoint and giving giving people the tools and analytics necessary to make more informed investment decisions. So I believe uh, in concert that if you put all those uh, factors together, there is room for positive surprise. But again. Uh, I spoke earlier about my philosophies about uh, business, about, you know, respecting the odds, right? One thing I wasn't able to say was whenever I look at, whenever I look at the business endeavor, I actually don't look at the upside. I look at the downside risk because the upside risk is something that you can't control, but the downside risk is something that's knowable. So, so in this case, I believe, as I mentioned, the stats that everybody, everybody has mentioned about participation rate that has been there forever. So I know my downside risk, but there's really a lot of room for positive surprise. I thought that you'd also be getting um, Vice Ganda to be your uh, brand ambassador for Dragon. <laughs> you know, I, I, I prefer the ro- Royal True Orange guy. <laughs> I think the Royal True Orange guy, you know, will, will generate more, more buzz. I, I think so too. My problem is that uh, the millennials and Gen Zs have no clue the Royal True Orange model is. But <laughs> 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 I'm just asking if you don't mind from a, I mean, because I'm a marketing guy, I'm a brand guy. How, how do you plan to go about marketing um, Dragonfly? Uh, I, mean, I understand as, as a whole, a lot of players need to grow it, but in particular, what's the, what's the strategy also to, to use to, to grow Dragonfly? Yep. It's, so, so we have three pillars. You know? So, this is something that we, we always speak about in, internally. We're going to be the most technologically sophisticated. We're going to be the most disruptive in terms of branding. And the lastly, the, the, the one that ties the two together and one that, you know, uh, is able to, to start that virtuous cycle is innovation. So one thing that, that one thing that I've learned, I, I mentioned the book, eating the big fish, right? Mm-hmm. You, you want to be the player that's driving the conversation. And the way you drive the conversation is by having you know, standing on the bedrock and having a lot of, you know, innovation in your pipeline and executing. The, the more you innovate, the more people take notice. And I feel like just looking at our first offering, right, it's something that people weren't prepared for. Uh, as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, we're getting feedback that people are having a hard time. Actually, some some people are having a hard time using using the app. 
because they were so used to the mediocrity that was being offered, you know, over the past, you know, 15 years, 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it, it's so, so, but, but it's uh, clearly it has gotten people excited. Clearly we've gotten mindshare. And so uh, I believe that, you know, the, our future pipeline of innovation is going to be even more groundbreaking. Got that. And, and have you talk about innovation. I just want to ask just, just because uh, it was great because the first innovation basically is just taking a look at what the market's doing here right now and saying, what can I do differently? That, that's, the, that's the first innovation. That was the, from the backwardness right. of doing it's the advanced technology. And it, it, it's a bigger question. How does innovation keep, how, how do you keep on innovating in the company? What, 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 what particular area do you look at? To continued innovation because now it's, it's going to be what I would call self-generated. I mean, it's basically uh, yourself, uh, your wife, who's the, who's the IT. I mean, how is it? It's you and, the, and your wife is IT. How do you keep planning, keeping the innovative edge, given that you've woken up many of your competitors from going, okay, right now they're, they're doing something, we're going to have to compete, so they're going to be spending a bit more money to, to compete with you. And how do you keep it? How will you keep that innovative edge? Yeah. So two things. Always look externally, right? So the the reason the reason we were able to actually dis- disrupt the industry is uh, on account of the fact that uh, Kathy and I are uh, our, our, our domain expertise. Uh, it was actually leveraged towards a more uh, developed financial market. So seeing that we were able to bring in a lot of those. Uh, 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 innovative features to, uh, to the local, lo- local local investing industry. But secondly, it's about listening to your customers. You, you, you know, RJ, I, I don't know if you guys use Zendesk in any, any of your businesses. Businesses. So we, ha- we have a uh, customer service app known as Zendesk, which funnels all the messages to, to one app, whether it's from Twitter, from Facebook, email, everything is funneled. And every night, I'm actually answering a lot of the customer queries. Because it helps me, it helps, it gives me a pulse of what the consumer wants. And over the past two weeks, we launched in May 8th, and we've already actually changed a lot of our workflow uh, to be in sync with what the, uh, what, the, what, the, what the consumers wanted. Because initially, we were following the workflow of the American brokerages. And it seems that, you know, uh, Filipinos are very used to the Gcash, the Gcash, the Maya, the Maya, Maya, Maya workflow. And we had to adopt some of those. And so it's, it's a, so innovating is not, is again, looking externally, but also leveraging customer feedback. Got that. that must make for some great, that must make for some great bedroom uh, reading, huh? uh, nighttime reading. Because I do work with my wife. I mean, that you put the app together. And, and you're, and I, I, I'm guessing that she's helping you also manage Dragonfly. How is it like, and how do you make sure to maintain a semblance of of, uh, of sanity? I mean, working with your spouse is great, but you know, it's it's also a challenge. Uh, and I think you understand what I mean. How, how do you yep. make sure that 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 uh, there's a certain balance between your professional and personal life over here? Right now, there's zero sanity. <laughs> uh, we're, we're, we're very, very tired. Actually, actually, uh, every day, I just, I'm just me. I'm just, I'm just everywhere to be, to be honest. Nowadays, uh, the meetings keep piling up. My, my calendar on, on my, on my, you know, on my email keeps piling up and it's exhilarating, but it's tiring. Uh, to be honest, coming to this, coming to this interview, I was already very, very tired, <laughs> but you know, I, I wanted to meet the, the Royal through orange guy. And, uh, and <laughs> yeah. But, but, but I do hope, you know, I mean, I guess this is really, this is, it's good that your wife also experiences the entrepreneurial life because we understand, I mean, there's certain things yes. that understand both as entrepreneurs, this is something that you really have to go through really. And it's nice to have a spouse who understands what you're going through because she's with you in the process. Correct. Correct. Actually, actually, to be honest, you know, I, 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 I mentioned that I didn't come from an entrepreneurial family, but my wife did. So in his, in her case, this is like breeding for her. Right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's second nature. It's second nature. For me, I had to grow into this. 
So uh, yeah, but but I I hundred percent agree. If if you and your spouse are in sync, it, you know if you have shared values, it it makes for a happier family life. But right now, as I mentioned, there's zero sanity. Yeah, exactly. I, and I get exactly what you're coming, where you're coming from. You know, it's 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 been a really great talk so far. I can't believe we've been talking for almost an hour over here, uh, John. Oh. <laughs> and, and I think we might we'll start we'll start wrapping up the discussion. But as I do know, um, just a couple of things. One one more is is this one. I know we talked about earlier on, you know, entrepreneurial opportunities. Uh, from your vantage point, do you see any opportunities? It does not have to be in the stock market, but in general, are you seeing any opportunities, particularly in the Philippines, given the demographics, given the size of the economy right now, given specific industries, or even in the stock market industry? Where can entrepreneurs still play a part in? Yep, I actually, I actually have one. Uh, so one of one of my best one of my best investments through the years has been Nvidia, right? So NVIDIA has become like the brains of generative AI. And generative AI is actually, is actually going to shake up a lot of what we do in the Philippines, especially if you consider that 11, 11 to 12% of our GDP is in BPO. And I feel that is at risk, right? 11% to 12% of the GDP is at risk uh, on account of generative AI. Uh Having said that, the, the, the Philippines really needs to migrate up the value chain. I feel a business venture that could potentially work would be, let's say, a massively online learning experience to help people transition from, let's say, being a customer sales representative to a developer. And that's now possible. If, 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 you, listen to, if you listen to the interview of Jensen Huang, in the NVIDIA, uh, in, in, in last quarter's uh, NVIDIA earnings call, he said that essentially generative AI was the iPhone moment of AI in the sense that it, 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 was, it was able to democratize uh, that the development, uh, the, you know, the, develop, the developer skill set. Uh, generative AI is already in, in, in let's say, in, in, in such apps like the GitHub Copilot, where it teaches you how, 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 how to code efficiently. So it's now within reach of even, you know, uh, non-techie people. And I feel it's, and I feel in, in this case, it's actually an existential threat, right? To, to, to a, a BPO industry that is very reliant on, on, on something that, uh, is actually easily commoditized. Got that, got that. Uh, but, you know, just to, in, into my mind, you know, as an entrepreneur or entrepreneur mindset, it just means that, like you said, you know, in other words, finding, finding new opportunities moving up in the value chain. And that's really what's yep. key here right now. Uh, and we just have to, uh, I, it's really keeping your ear on the ground and see, okay, what, what's next for me? You know, what's the next opportunity possible uh, that you have to move to? And that's, that's where the entrepreneurial discard comes in play. Yep. Uh, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Again, it's never a dull moment for entrepreneurs. Exactly. And having said that, you know, you, you said you've been, you've been, you've been after grad school, you've been playing in different industries, you've been finance, you've been makeup, now you're doing stock market. Um, if you were to share some of the things that you've learned over the years that might have accelerated things for you or been a management company yeah. that you want to share with aspiring entrepreneurs here, what would you like to share with them, John? Uh, absolutely. So, you know, so so much focus is is put on profitability. So uh, every time you go to market, there's really a high barrier to profitability. But something that I didn't understand as a neophyte entrepreneur 20, uh, 15 years ago was that there's even a higher barrier to free cash flow generation. You know, even in business school, when they teach free when they teach free cash flow computation in corporate finance, they always put it within the context of valuation. But in reality, let's say, you know, when when I was again when I was a neophyte entrepreneur, I've all, I always wondered why. Okay, from 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 an income statement point of view, I should be making money, but where's the cash? It, it's tied up in inventory. It's tied up in capital expenditures. Right. So 
things of that nature. So if, if I were, if I, you know, if I, if I were to advise an, you know, an aspiring entrepreneur, focus on the free cash flow because, you know, I, I remember, I remember in my new venture strategy uh, class in university of Chicago uh, on the first day, my, our professor, our professor, professor mentioned, do you know what I call entrepreneurs? I call entrepreneurs downwardly mobile. They start off with, 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 with a stable salary to being the last person to get paid. That's absolutely a reality, right? We, we've all experienced that. You know, we've all experienced the struggle of uh, not being able to pay ourselves. Yes. We've all experienced yes. the struggle of, of the business not being able to give out dividends. So focus on free cash flow. Don't focus on, uh, on net income. Net income is, is, is a made-up number. It's a fictional yeah. number. I think that you'll have to just explain a bit more some case studies of what does free cash free cash flow mean. Oh sure, absolutely. So so free cash flow is uh, the, the the amount of cash at a particular point in time that the business has. So the, the problem with net income, right? Uh, there's there's what you call accrual accounting and cash accounting. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how to proceed <laughs> within the context of this po- podcast. But so free cash flow, uh, to arrive at free cash flow, you actually take out non-cash elements that contribute to uh, 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 the, the final absolute value of net income. For example, depreciation. Depreciation is a non-cash, uh, non-cash line item, right? Mm-hmm. So essentially, you have to add that back to, to net income. But in reality, you add that back to... So... Um, so uh, and again, exactly what I'm you mean. Sorry. It means that basically that's how much cash you actually have on hand that you can yes. use. Yes, exactly. Because there's a lot of non-cash items that, 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 that go into net income that actually uh, you can't use to pay yourself nor, nor give out dividends. So uh, as I said, net income is, is a fictional number that, people, uh, that you can play games around with. And again, you know, I'd like to thank everybody because you got a great impromptu personal finance and corporate finance lesson coming from John Lim. John, thank you. <laughs> it's been really great speaking with you. And I think, gauging from the participation uh, of the people here in the comment box, they really appreciate what you have to say. So for those of you here right now who want to try and open up a Dragonfly account, uh, Z, can we put back a gun on screen? That's Dragonfly, D-R-A-G-O-N dot, D-R-A-G-O-N-F-I dot P-H. And John, just, you know, since you're the ultimate uh, ambassador for Dragonfly, how low is it to deposit in Dragonfly to start up your account? So, so tomorrow, actually, we'll be announcing uh, a promo wherein, you know, uh, you, can, you can open an account for as little as 25000 Because initially, in, initially we, 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 we set the bar at 50000 And if you go below the 50000 mark, there's a platform fee. But now, it's 25000 just to encourage more people to sign up. And again, thanks so much, uh, John. And to the rest of the Dragonfly team for joining us, I really appreciate the feedback. Also, thanks so much for giving us that feedback advice. Uh, it's been a really great session. Unfortunately, we have to end over here. Again, to everybody, thank you so much for joining us. John Lim of Dragonfly here in the Arjuna Desk Podcast. We'll see you guys in the next podcast. Thanks so much, everybody. John, thanks, Arjuna. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for having us. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia, the hosts of the program, or other programs of the network. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.